Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 13. We're going to be covering two chapters this morning, chapters 13 and 14. And uh, I don't normally do this, but as I was studying this, I go, you know, I can see, I can see uh, kind of an outline in those three, in those two chapters. And uh, what I saw in there as I was preparing is that there's five phases in the spiritual growth in the life of Abraham that were, of course, he's called Abram at this point, but I keep calling him Abraham. It's the same guy. He just got renamed by the Lord later. Gave his, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. But there's five phases in the spiritual growth of Abraham. The very first phase that we're going to look at is returning, and we'll talk about what that means. Then there's separation, and then there's revelation, and then there's preparation, and then finally there's conviction. So we'll talk about that. So the first phase is returning, and, and uh, we'll look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And if you were here last week or if you've read Genesis before, you know that Abram went down to Egypt with his wife Sarai and all his family, Lot and his nephew and all the people that they had and all the livestock they had because it was a famine in the promised land. And it was a severe famine. Um, the thing is, God had never instructed Abram to go down to Egypt. He, uh, Pharaoh, or excuse me, Pharaoh. Abram was in the promised land. He was in the land that God says, I'm going to give this to you. Um, but because of fear, um, he went down to Egypt. And, you know, like we said last week, I mean, he had a lot of people that were depending on him. He had family, uh, lots of livestock. What do you do in a situation like that? And so he decided to go down to Egypt. Um, Egypt, as we've studied in the Bible before, and we've talked about it before, Egypt is really a picture of the world. And uh, so here, Abram is, in a sense, trusting in the world rather than relying on the Lord. And uh, so for Abram, going down to Egypt really was a detour um, from God's will. Notice, you know, everywhere that Abram goes, he builds altars. We'll, we'll see that as we go through the story of the life of Abram. But when he gets to Egypt, he never builds an altar there. Um, he's, and, and, and so as he's down there, he's really, every time he's building an altar, he's worshiping the Lord. So he's not building an altar. He's not worshiping the Lord at this point because he's out of God's will. Um, not only that, but because he's out of God's will, because he's not in fellowship and worshiping the Lord, things are starting to happen in Abram's heart. And we'll see that he's starting to get fearful. Fear is starting to creep in and it's increasing. And, uh, so what happens? Well, things start happening. He starts compromising. And, uh, you know, he, as he's going down there, uh, you know, he, he's, he's going down there out of fear already, right? Because he's got to feed his family. He doesn't know what to do. And so he's, he's going down there to Egypt where apparently there was plenty of food. And as he's going down there, he either heard of the reputation of Pharaoh for taking uh, men's wives and killing the husband or, uh, you know, he, he heard it on the way or whatever. And so he starts getting fearful about that. And so he tells Sarai, hey, once we get down there, if anyone asks you tell him you're my sister that way they won't kill me and uh and so now he's lying and he goes down there and his fears are realized because that's exactly what happens 
Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem. Uh, but Pharaoh now, he doesn't kill Abram because he thinks that, that Sarah and Abram are brothers. And so this is his future brother-in-law. So, hey, he's going to treat him pretty good. And so he starts giving him livestock, gives him camels and donkeys and servants and slaves and all kinds. He treats him very, very well while he's in there. And uh, so Abram's kind of in a jam. What do you do at that point? You know, sometimes we lie, right? Okay, maybe it's just me. Sometimes I lie. And uh, nobody's, nobody's like, yeah, I'm there. Um, but, you know, sometimes you get yourself into predicament where you, where you like, maybe a, a little white lie or a little, you don't tell, you know, half truth. And pretty soon you're caught in it. How do you extricate yourself from it? You either have to confess and say, hey, I lied, or you can't keep going and stuff. And uh, so Abram, obviously, he probably felt that he was in a jam here. What's he going to do? Um, but what's really cool is at this point, we get to these two verses or these two words in the Bible says, but God, but God intervenes and uh, God ended up plaguing Pharaoh and his men. We don't know what that plague was, but apparently it was bad enough that Pharaoh is like trying to figure out what's happening. And uh, somehow he finds out that Sarai and Abram are actually hu- uh, husband and wife and not brother and sister. And so Pharaoh calls Abram, rebukes Abram, uh, and then sends them away with everything that he gave them. He doesn't want anything back. He just wants them out of his country. And so he sends them away. And I can imagine... Now, scriptures doesn't tell us, but I'm married, right? I can imagine that was probably the most quiet trip going back from Egypt to Canaan. I bet you there was not a word. Even the servants are probably like, don't say anything, you know. And just maybe you just heard livestock, you know, that's about it. A quiet trip, I'm sure. But Abraham, he took a detour from God's will. And uh, he got himself into a jam that only God could deliver him from, and God did deliver him from. And so now Abram is returning, and notice he's returning to the place of God's will for him. He's returning back to the promised land. Now, incidentally, scriptures doesn't tell us that the famine ended. There's no indication that the famine was over, um, but to Abram, it's like, it doesn't matter. I don't care. At this point, I'm just going back. He knows where he belongs. And you know, the interesting thing is, he obviously didn't starve. Uh, Bible Again, Bible doesn't tell us that, but God must have provided for them because we don't read about him starving. And God would have provided for them had they stayed in, their, in God's will in the promised land in the first place. And so Abram returns and he goes back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, Ai to the place of the altar where he had made there at first. And it says, and there he called on the name of the Lord. And you know, that's interesting. One of the things, there's a theme throughout the Bible and it's returning to the Lord when we stray from him. It's, you can find it all throughout the Bible. How many times do you read where God's pleading with his people through the prophets to go to return to him, come back to me, return? Um, Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, speaking to the church of Ephesus. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you, re- unless you repent. So there's always a theme of returning. God's always saying, come back to me, come back to me. And so this is what Abram's doing. He's returning 
to the Lord. And sometimes that's necessary for us. You know, we've wandered, and maybe this morning you're here, and you've kind of sensed in your own life, you've kind of drifted from God's will. You're, you kind of got off in the weeds. You're doing your own thing, whatever. And that's like, no, you know, this is the Lord's word to you, man. He wants you to return back to that place where you started at at the beginning where you were at the beginning. Think back to when you were just walking just close with the Lord. Maybe it's when you first got saved or rededicated your life or just one time where you just really, that's where he wants you to come back to. And so maybe this morning, that's a call for you to come back to that. So that's the first phase, returning to the Lord. And it's so important. You can't get beyond that. That's the first thing. You got to return to that place. The second phase is separation. Look at verse five. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Now if you remember God's original command, what was it? It was get out of your country. Abram had done that. From your family, Abram had not done that. And from your father's house to a land that I will show you. He had partially obeyed, right? He had left, but he had left with his father, Terah. They went to Haran, and that's where they stayed for a while. There was some wasted time there in Haran. But now he's finally back in the land, except he still has his nephew Lot with him. And uh, both Abram and, and Lot, they, they've got lots of flocks, and they have herdsmen that are tending their flocks. And evidently, those herdsmen, they're starting to strive together. You know, it's probably like, I'm assuming, I'm not a farmer, but I'm assuming it has to do with pasturing. Maybe they're arguing over, hey, I want my animals are here, you put your animals over there. Or maybe it's watering, hey, I want to water my animals first. You know, whatever it was, there was strife between those herdsmen of both Abram and um, and Lot. And what's kind of jumps out there in verse 7, it's, it almost seems like it's out of place. It says, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. What does that have to do with anything? Well, why is that mentioned here? I think it's because Lot and Abraham are family. You know, Lot's his nephew. I mean, they're, they're, they're family, they're blood, they're relatives. And yet, to everyone around them, they're starting to look like enemies. And as a result, they're becoming a bad witness to the heathens around them. Philippians 2, verse 14, Paul says this, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. When you and I are, are, are at odds or in strife with another brother and sister in the Lord, it's a bad witness for Jesus. The Lord said, they're going to know you by your love. They're not going to know you about your doctrinal purity or all this. They're going to know you by your love. And so when when we're striving together, striving against each other, it's a bad witness. And it's obvious, or it's becoming obvious to Abraham, that separation from Lot is necessary because of that. And so he tells Lot, he says, hey, God called me here. He didn't call you here. Get out of here. No, he didn't do that, did he? Verse 8 chapter 13. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. It's interesting. Abraham's the one that took the initiative to end the strife. 
You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9? He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Abram's the one who's taking the step. You know, James, in his epistle, verse, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, But the wisdom that from, is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Abraham wanted to make peace. And so so separation is necessary. And he's the one who's willing to yield to Lot. You know, if you're in some dispute with another person, whether it's a Christian or an unbeliever, and you consider yourself to be right. And you know when we're in a dispute, we always consider ourselves to be right, right? Right? I mean, we're right. And they're wrong. I mean, otherwise, why would we be in a dispute, right? It's never like, they're right and I'm wrong. We never feel that way. We know that they're wrong, right? We're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Right. Okay. Well, if you consider yourself to be right, and usually in a dispute, we do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be disputing. Um, and you consider yourself to be wiser I'm wise, they're unwise, and you consider yourself to be more spiritual, they're in the wrong, I'm in the right, then if you are the one who's more spiritual, you should be the one to take the initiative to end the strife. Really. It works in marriages. Sometimes the spouse says, well, I, I know I'm right, and I know I'm more spiritual. Well, then if you're the spiritual one, you take the steps to end the strife. It's so important. And be willing to yield and be willing to yield. And that's exactly what Abram said. Look, he says, hey, if you take the left, man, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. You know, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, the church in Corinth had a lot of issues. They were suing one another. They were at odds. There were factions in the church. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Man, that goes against the grain. I don't want to be cheated. When I'm in the right, I'm in the right, right? I don't want to be cheated. But listen, Abram was willing to yield. And sometimes we need to yield, right? If we're the spiritual one, we should yield. But don't be surprised when you take that honorable step and go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be willing to yield. You, don't be surprised that they're going to go, oh, okay, well, since you're doing that, no, you yield. That's Minnesota, right? Minnesota, nice. But that's not necessarily the case. Don't be surprised when you're willing to yield that the other person says, cool, I'll take that then, right? Because that's exactly what happened with Lot. He takes the advantage. Verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. How did Lot choose the land? It says he lifted up his eyes. John wrote this in his his epistle, 1 John 2, verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Lot lifted up his eyes and said, man, this is excellent land. I want that land. You know what we're never told about Lot's relationship with the Lord? We're never told about that. We're never, we never read that, you know, Lot built an altar to the Lord. We never read that in Scripture. He's wealthy like Abram is, and he does pitch tents like Abraham does, which is it's kind of wild. Here's this wealthy, wealthy man, and yet he's still living in tents, not building homes. And Lot evidently was also in tents. Um, he was in tents, but he was also in tents. Um, but we never read of him building an altar because he wasn't a worshiper the way Abraham was. And Lot's choice is based solely on a good business decision. And sometimes when we're faced with a decision, that's how we look at it, right? Well, it makes business sense. It makes financial sense. Think about it. Lot has many livestock to take care of. And this is fertile pasture land. This is great land. It's well watered. It makes good business sense to take that piece of land. And it ends up being a financial decision for Lot. It says that Lot chose for himself. We never read that he sought the Lord. He never sought the Lord in the matter he chose for himself. He never considered the consequences of his choice either. You know, he still pitches a tent as, we, as we'll read, but, you know, as the story of Lot's life progresses, and we read about it in the scriptures, we find that that even stops. Pretty soon he goes from pitching his tent near Sodom to actually living in Sodom, in a home in Sodom, to going from there to actually being an elder in the city of Sodom. And uh, this decision that he's making right now, based on what he sees with his eyes, his decision is going to have real consequences. He's going to end up losing his wife as a result of the choices that he's making at this point in his, in his life. He's going to end up losing his wife. His daughters, later on, they're going to think that there's no other men um, alive after God destroys Sodom, and they're going to end up committing incest with their father. Um, he, all those possessions, you know, he chose that plane because he had all this livestock. It was, it, was just a, it was a good business decision. He's going to end up losing all of that stuff when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord is going to deliver Lot. We'll read about that when we get to it. Um, the Lord's going to send angels to deliver Lot, but he's going to end up with nothing but the clothes on his back and his life, basically. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, he says this, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. Lot's going to end up losing everything. He never sought the Lord. He wasn't a worshiper of the Lord. He made bad choices, and he's making a bad choice, and he's going to end up reaping the consequence of those bad choices that he's making. And you know, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've made some bad choices, and now you're kind of reaping the consequences of those bad choices. I want to encourage you this morning, it's not too late to go back to Bethel. It's no, not too late to return to your first love. 
And so Abraham and Lot, they've got this strife going on, and Abraham recognizes, you know, I need to separate from my nephew. And this is what God had told him all along to do in the first place. And so he's willing to, to yield. He's willing to just, whatever, whatever you want, Lot, you just take what you want. I'll take whatever you don't want. And sometimes separation is necessary. Um, you know, from friends, especially, well, especially the unbelieving friends, but even Christians, if they're living carnally and they're hampering your relationship with the Lord, if they're impeding your relationship with the Lord, sometimes separation is, is necessary. I remember when I first gave my heart back to the Lord and, and I, you know, I, I had been involved with partying and everything, got in the military and was partying in the military and finally gave my heart to the Lord while I was in the military. Got out, went back to my old stomping grounds and there's all my old friends, right? And, and they're like, hey, dude, you want to party? I'm like, yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus. No, I don't really want to. And, you know, it was really awkward. At, at some point, it's like, you know what? I just got to, I got to step away. I have to get away from them because I, I, at that point, I knew my weakness and I didn't want to get back into that lifestyle anymore. And sometimes we need to do that. You know, Paul writes, writes to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 17. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Sometimes there's people that are causing divisions. You need to avoid them too. separate from them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. My mom used to always quote that to me. Some of my friends she liked, some of my friends, they were just bad news. And she she would write it, it would be on the refrigerator, come in there, there'd be a refrigerator. She always had Ann Landers stuff, like articles about marijuana and stuff. She always put them on everywhere, you know. I'd say, oh, okay, you know, it's like, she was, she always praying for me. And God answered her prayers. I'm I'm back for the Lord. But uh, she used to quote that verse, evil company corrupts good habits. I, I, I hated hearing that. But it's true. It really is true. And sometimes separation is necessary, especially if it's a, it's a, a friend or a relationship that's causing you, it's hampering your relationship with the Lord. Then you need to separate, and it's good to separate. And now that Abraham has returned, he's come back to Bethel, he's, he's, he's back into the Lord's will, now he's separated from his carnal nephew, and I'm just going to say it outright, he was a carnal person, now there's a third phase in the growth of Abraham's life, and that's revelation. Verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, you see, it was after he was back in the Lord's will, it was after he separated from Uh, his nephew Lot, that then the Lord reveals to him. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Remember when God had called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees? He says, go to a land I'll show you. He didn't even tell him where to go. We always say, well, Abram had weak faith, but he grew in his faith, which is true. But how much faith would it take for you to pack up your family, to head out, and you don't even know where you're going? It's like, I'm just, we're just going. God's, God's going to reveal it to me. That's exactly what Abram did. And now that Abram has, has he's followed the Lord, he's obeyed, he's finally obeyed after how many years, now God gives him a greater revelation. Remember that land I told you about, Abram? Hey, look around you. This is it. It's a greater revelation of what God's will is for Abram. 
in verse 15, it says, All the land you see I give to you and your descendants forever. You know when God said forever, you know what he means? Forever. You know, the people are in the land of Israel again. Israel is a nation state again once now, and people are wanting to divide up the land. God has promised it to this nation of Israel forever. His covenant hasn't changed. It's still, it's still their land. It's, it's valid today. And God says, not only is this land given to you, but he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, what's interesting about that, Abram's about, he's at least 75 years old at this point. Sarah is at least 65 years old at this point. I mean, they've been getting the, 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 the sunshine menu at McDonald's, whatever, you know, for quite a while now at this point. Um, and yet, and they don't have any children. And yet God says, I'm going to make you as numerous, your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Well, how does Abraham, uh, Abram, I'll say, how does he respond to the revelation? Look at verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. The Jewish Targum says when Abram left Egypt, he was so wealthy, he was overloaded with gold and silver. And I think he had at least 300 servants, we're going to find out. Uh, so he probably had much more than that. And all kinds of livestock, he could have loaded them on all kinds of animals. In the Bible, or the, not the Bible, but the Targum says he was overloaded. He had so much gold and silver, it was almost too much to carry. And here this guy, what does he do? He's still pitching tents. He's still pitching tents. He's wealthy beyond the bond belief. He's given the land as far as his eyes can see, and he, and he still dwells in a tent. Why? Because he's a pilgrim on this planet. He knows that this is not his home. In fact, Hebrews will say he's searching for that eternal home. So he's a pilgrim, and he still builds an altar. He's a worshiper of the Lord. Well, we get to chapter 14, and we don't know how long, but some time has elapsed between chapter 13 and, and chapter 14. And so beginning with verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shador Laamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Shalodoramur, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, that guy's name, Shalodoramur or whatever, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheba Kiriatham, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishphat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against those kings. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time he's mentioned the Hebrew, by the way. 
Then the one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. And what did Abram say? Good, Lot deserves it. Man, he took the best land. He deserves what he gets. That's not what he says, what he did. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's up in northern Israel today. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the David of Shalorlomer and the kings who were with him. You know, it's interesting to me, between verse 17 and verse 21, there's this mysterious man that comes out to meet Abraham as well. And it's like, why is that tucked in there? And this has to do with the next phase that I think is involved in Abram's growth of his faith, and it's called preparation, or I call it preparation. Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. You know, this is the first mention of Melchizedek, this guy. We don't know anything about him. It's just the first mention. Here comes this guy to meet Abram. It won't be until about a thousand years later that he's going to show up again in scriptures in the Psalm 110. David is going to prophesy that the Messiah is going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek appears in Genesis. A thousand years later, Abraham talks about him in his prophecy in Psalm 110. Then about a thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews again refers to Melchizedek and he refers him or it's in reference to Jesus. So who is this Melchizedek? Well, we're told here he's the king of Salem, which would have been, I believe, Jerusalem. He's also, as we find out in Hebrews, the king, his name means king of righteousness as well as king of peace. And we're told that he's the priest of God Most High. Now, what's interesting about that is he's a priest and he's a king. And throughout the Bible, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, they were never to take the role of a priest. Uzziah, one of the guys, tried to do it one time. It, was, it just was bad for him. It was God never wanted priests and kings. He didn't want those roles blurred uh, in, in, the, in the kingdom of Israel and Judah. Uh, and yet, uh, Melchizedek here was both a king and a priest. And Jesus, of course, he's king of kings, but he's also your and my great high priest. Now, at the time when the writer of Hebrews was writing his letter, the Jewish leaders at that time, they had a real hard time accepting the notion that Jesus could be a priest. Why? Because he wasn't descended from Levi. He wasn't, he wasn't a Levitical priest. Um, and so the writer says, hey, Melchizedek, he didn't descend from the tribe of Levi. He didn't have father or son, you know, genealogy. He, didn't, he wasn't born into that priesthood. He, became a, he, he was appointed a priest, and he says just like that, Jesus was appointed a priest because Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. 
Hebrews 7 verse 3, it says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So who is this Melchizedek? The commentaries are divided. Um, Some think that he might be Shem. Um, I don't think so, but some think he might be. Some have some other opinions about him, about who he is, that he was some pagan priest or whatever. Um, Some people, myself included, believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that Jesus appeared uh, to Abraham in in this form of Melchizedek. Now, whether he is or not, we're not going to settle that here today, obviously, but he is undeniably a type or a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. And look at what he does. What does he do? He brings out bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? Bread and wine, right? The communion elements. Uh, he brings out bread and wine to Abram. He blesses Abram and he blesses God. You know, that's what a priest does. A priest, his role is to mediate between man and God. And this is exactly what Melchizedek does. He blesses Abram and he blesses God. And I called this whole portion of scripture we're talking about preparation. Why? Because the blessings that he's going to pronounce on Abraham is going to have an impact on Abraham that's going to prepare him for what's going to happen in the next few verses. So what does he, what does he uh, tell him? He says, basically, blessed, let me go back to it here should have it in my notes here. Uh, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So what is he telling him here? What is he blessing him? You know, God is the possessor of both heaven and earth. God gave Abraham all the wealth that he had. Abraham, you know, when he yielded his land, the the land to Lot, um, he may have inside thought, you know, I'm I'm giving up this good land and stuff. But you know what? God paid Abraham. God blessed Abraham in a way. Even though Abraham yielded, God blessed him. Sometimes we're afraid to yield because we don't want to give up things. But you know what? God will bless you if you'll just be obedient to him if he calls you to do that. Not only was God the one who possesses heaven and earth, I mean, all the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He's the one that's blessed Abraham, but God is the one who delivers Abraham. Abraham, you didn't need to fear that famine. Abraham, you didn't need to fear Pharaoh. And Abraham, you don't need to fear those kings either. Because if you think about it, they're going to want revenge at some point, right? They're going to come back and they're going to fight him probably again. He didn't need to fear those things. And he's going to need to understand these principles, these truths, in preparation for what the king of Sodom is going to do next. And so what does Abraham do? He says he gave Melchizedek a tithe of all, presumably the spoils of war, right? Um, you know, there's Christians, and we had, I've talked to people before that say, you know, I don't believe that tithing is, a, is, a, is important or is a law for the, new, for the New Testament believer. You know, that's part of the Levitical law. We're under the new covenant. That was the old covenant. And I will agree with you on that, that it's not a law. That, it's, that there's no command that Christians in the, under the new covenant are to tithe. But what's interesting to me is Abraham and later on Jacob, they're both going to tithe before the law ever came around about tithing. So tithing in principle, it precedes the law. But you're right, there is no command. God doesn't want you to give uh, out, of, out of obligation. He just wants you to give out of your own free will. Anyways... The writer of Hebrews 
speaking about Melchizedek, he points out that Abraham, and if you think about Abraham, you know, not only did the Jews revere Abraham, but the Muslims revere Abraham. He, according to the Jewish patriarchs, he's like the best of the, he's the greatest of the Jewish patriarchs. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, as great as Abraham was, he was blessed by someone greater than him, Melchizedek. And it's interesting, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, or to the Pharisees, in John chapter 8, verse 56, he says something interesting to them. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews are, they're listening to him, thinking that, saying that, he goes, they said, so then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right away, man, they, it's like Jesus claimed to be God right there, and they took up stones to try to kill him. Well, Jesus could have been referring to this event, till this, this event with Melchizedek coming out to meet Abram. Uh, or he could also have been referring, later on we'll know that Jesus will appear again to um, Abram and Sarai um, there when b- referring to the birth of their child, that, that will happen. Um, but in any event, this mysterious Melchizedek comes out to meet Abraham. He gives him bread and wine. He blesses him. And I think it's all in preparation for what happens next. And this next phase is conviction. Chapter 14, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now what's interesting to me, when Melchizedek came out to meet Abram, who was he? He was priest of God Most High. And now when Abram says to the king of Sodom, he says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High. The same title. Same title. Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, blesses Abram and says, Blessed be God of Ab- of, uh, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And how does Abram respond to the king of Sodom. I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. See, everything that, he, that, that Melchizedek was blessing, it had an impact on Abram. He says, I'll take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. I will take anything, not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram was so impacted by that appearance of Melchizedek to trust in God most high and not to trust in the king of Sodom. That whatever happens to Abraham, he's like, man, I don't want you to receive any credit. It's all going to go to God. Now, I was told this story, I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's true, but apparently during the tent days of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith once, there was, you know, he had an assistant pastor named Romaine, and apparently during the tent days, it's kind of interesting, tent days, but um, during that time there was a wealthy businessman that apparently came, saw what was going on in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and went to Romaine and said, Romaine, he goes, I, I really believe in what you guys are doing here. I want to donate a million dollars to you guys to, to build yourself a church and everything. And Romaine probably was like, yeah, <laughs> let me go talk to Chuck, which he did. He went to talk to Chuck. Chuck Smith evidently 
talked to this man. The man wanted to donate a million dollars to his ministry. And Chuck Smith said, let me pray about it. He prayed about it. And he came back to the man. And he says, I, I, I don't want to receive that million dollars from you. And, you know, look at what God did with the ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. God blessed it. He didn't need man to do it. Now, if anyone, you want to donate a million dollars, you, I may not be that uh, spiritual, but, <laughs> but what a beautiful picture. And this is what Abraham does here. He recognizes that promotion comes from the Lord. I remember a time in my life when I was trying to promote myself and my work. And, you know, that's what you always are told, right? You've got to promote yourself. You've got to sell yourself. You've got you to be assertive. You know, you've got to tell them how good you are. I always feel awkward doing interviews. You know, you're trying to interview for a new job. Yeah, I'm a really good, you know, whatever. Um, promotion comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. You don't need to strive at it. Deliverance comes from the Lord. You see, Abraham, Melchizedek met him and prepared him for that temptation when the king of Sodom says, hey, take everything you want. And, 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 and Abram's like, no, no, no. I don't want to take anything from you because I don't want you to take any credit. It all goes to God. And God blesses Abram. God gives Abram the firm conviction in him to enable him to withstand the temptation to receive wealth from the king of Sodom. An interesting thing, too. Sometimes Christians... They get a conviction, right? The Lord speaks speak something, maybe he's speaking to your heart about something, whatever it is, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to eat meat, or I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to do that. And sometimes people, they, they take their conviction and they project it on someone else. God told me to do this, and so you need to do it too. And I, I've been around Christians that have done that. You know, God says, God told me to set aside the this, this Sunday, the Lord's Day, I'm not going to work anywhere, you shouldn't do it either. Well, the thing is, in those areas, maybe God's telling you to do that, then you need to obey that. But don't voice that on everybody else. Because God doesn't necessarily told everyone that. And Abraham doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, these guys can't receive anything else. He goes, no, these guys, let them take what they want, but I don't want it. God's, God's spoken to my heart. Not to them, necessarily. They can do what they want. I, I appreciate that, because sometimes you get into a situation where people try to lay their convictions on you, and, and you know, that gets into legalism. We don't need that. Unfortunately for Lot, you know, here's this perfect opportunity. Lot's been rescued from his, from his uncle Abram, and uh, you know, they still need to be separate. But at this point, man, Lot should have taken his stuff and ran. He should have got f- as far away as he could from Sodom. But you know what? He doesn't separate from these wicked associates of his. They're very wicked. We'll find out later as we get in further into Scripture. And he evidently goes back to living in Sodom. And the next time we read about Lot, he will have lost practically everything. Now, I mentioned earlier, having defeated a bunch of kings in battle, there's a good chance that they're, gonna, they're not going to take it just laying down. They're going to regroup, and sooner or later, they're going to try to uh, seek vengeance on Abraham. And I'm going to just jump into chapter 15, just one verse there. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then we'll see what happens next week when we get further into uh, Genesis chapter 15. But you know, for you and I as believers we're no longer fit for this world. I don't know if you realize that. 
you know, before you became to the, your faith in Christ, before you were walking with the Lord, you know, you, you kind of fit in with the world. They, they thought you were one of them and you kind of fit into it and stuff. But now that you have a relationship with the Lord, you know, you try to backslide and it's just like uh, backslidden Christians, man, they're like the worst people to be around. They're miserable, right? Because why? Because they don't fit. They know they don't fit. They know they don't fit in the world, but they're still there. You know, it's just, it's, it's a bad deal. And you and I, we no longer fit in this world. The Bible says you and I are strangers and pilgrims. We're aliens in this world. And, you know, sometimes we do drift. We do go back into the world. We go back to Egypt, so to speak. And like the prodigal, remember the story of the prodigal? He came to his senses and he returned to the father. He went back to where he started. And sometimes that's what needs to happen to each one of us. I remember a time in my life when I walked away from the Lord for a number of years and it came to the point where I found I had to go back to the beginning. I had to go back to the very beginning and just start all over again. And God allows you to do that. He'll allow you to do it over and over again. Go back to where you started, return. And don't let ungodly or carnal relationships hinder your obedience to the Lord. If you're in a relationship and it's not a God-honoring relationship and if they're trying to drag you down, they're preventing you from obeying the Lord, they're preventing you from, from you know, whatever it is that the Lord's laid on your heart, separation might be the thing. It might be necessary. In fact, it might be healthy for you in your walk with the Lord. And I know sometimes we go through these periods of time where it seems like God's not speaking to us, right? It's like we're quiet or it's like the Lord's not speaking to you. Well, let me ask you this. Have you already obeyed or have you obeyed what he has already revealed to you? Because, you know, God's not just going to keep laying revelation, revelation, revelation. He didn't do that with Abraham. There was a period of years where it was silent. And it wasn't until Abraham obeyed the Lord that finally the Lord gave him more revelation. So if you're in a period today and you're like, man, I haven't been heard God speaking to me. It's not that he doesn't want to speak to you. It's that he's waiting for you to obey whatever it is that he's laid on your heart. Oh, do the thing that he wants you to do. And then he's going to reveal more to you. Progressively, he'll give you more. He may be waiting for you to complete step A in faith so that he can reveal step B to you. He just wants you to grow in your faith and to trust him. And the best way for you and I to be prepared to resist the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil is to have an encounter and communion with the Lord. Melchizedek was a picture of that. How do we do that? In prayer. Be in prayer with the Lord. Be in the word. Allow God's word to speak to you. Why? Because it's going to give you the right perspective. What's the right perspective, man? God's the possessor of both heaven and earth. Man, God owns everything. He owns you. You were bought at a price, the Bible says. You were bought with the precious blood of a lamb. He possesses you as well. He's going to take care of you. He'll meet your needs. You just need to trust him. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. He'll take care of you. And he's also your and my deliverer. We don't need to trust in the world. We, he wants us to put our trust in him because he's our deliverer. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this message this morning. And, and Lord, just as Melchizedek prepared Abraham, Lord, to be able to withstand the temptations of Sodom and the, the temptations of the things of this world, Lord, I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would strengthen our convictions, Lord, that we would 
know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the one who blesses us that lord pro- promotion comes from you lord 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 you you give us all things lord we we don't even the jobs that we have lord you gave us the, our minds and our abilities to do those jobs Lord, you keep us healthy to be able to work. Lord, it's, it's, it's not us. It's you who blesses us. Lord, I pray that we might have that firm conviction to, to recognize that, Lord. And, Lord, that we would have the firm conviction to trust you, Lord, that you're our deliverer. Lord, we don't need to turn to the things of this world, Lord. We don't need to uh, trust in, in the world, Lord. We just need to look to you and to trust in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in our convictions this morning. Lord, that as we go this week, Lord, we would, like Abraham, have the right perspective. And Father, I pray for any uh, prodigals here this morning, Lord, those that maybe they've drifted from you, Lord, maybe not gone too far, but Lord, they felt like they've just, uh, I've just been away from the Lord. I've been out of fellowship. Lord, I pray that this morning they're encouraged to return back to you. And Lord, I, I want to lift up those that, Lord, are, Lord, they're struggling with relationships, Lord. They, they're, they're in a relationship, and Lord, they know that it's not honoring you. Lord, they know that this friendship or whatever it is, Lord, that it's, it's, it's hindering them in their walk. Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would just speak to their hearts. Lord, that you give them the, the, not only the conviction, but the courage to take us the step that's necessary, Lord, as you reveal that to them. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us, Lord, and, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for each person here, Lord. I pray your blessing upon them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.